Hello and welcome to episode 77 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is lockdown. This is in the Express. Lockdowns are not the solution. We should be able to live our lives, says Esther McVeigh. Liverpool might have been a divided city for the Merseyside derby, but it's united against Tier 3 lockdown. While politically I have not seen eye to eye with my home city's civic leaders, I do share the DNA of the people. I am of the city and from the city. A city whose people are open and honest, savvy and caring, with a wit so sharp you could cut your finger on it. I roared with laughter when I saw the advert for a Stella sandwich, a bottle between two pieces of bread and heard people question whether a small portion of nachos constitute a meal and if carrying a dirty plate allows them to get a pint. The people in Merseyside can see the humour even in dark times. Tier 3 is going to be a dark time for a city that has reinvented itself as a tourist capital and university city, voted the third best city to visit in the UK in 2019 only after London and Edinburgh and home to approximately 60,000 students. This lockdown will rip the heart out of the city's economy. The Liverpool region visitor economy is worth more than... £4.9 billion, pounds, being 67.3 million visitors to the region and supports over 57,000 jobs. That is why the pragmatic people in Liverpool are questioning the rationale of a Tier 3 lockdown. How can the city and its citizens be deprived of their freedoms and livelihood with all the future problems that will bring, from poverty and high unemployment to health issues, physical and mental? In fact, the Office for National statistics report on coronavirus and depression in adults has seen depression almost double from one in ten before the pandemic to one in five during the pandemic in june this year these are the issues that the people in liverpool can see coming before we see more lockdowns longer lockdowns and harsher lockdowns in cities such as liverpool the government and its medical advisors would do better to understand why the rates are going up because they're testing for a virus with the test not testing for a virus and the testing is massively increased as simple as that It's nothing to do with what people do. Areas like Manchester have been in lockdown for over 10 weeks and the infection rate has risen exponentially, according to a test not testing for the virus. For example, the arbitrary 10pm curfew is clearly not working. Everyone can see that. Closing COVID-compliant bars and restaurants resulting in people congregating in the streets in huge numbers, queuing around the block to buy booze from corner shops and supermarkets and meeting in friends' homes. The worst environment to spread the infection is manifestly stupid. It is also clear the return of students to universities has led to a surge in COVID cases in our great cities. No, it's not. What's led to a surge of COVID cases in our great cities is a test not testing for the virus. Every case is because of a test not testing for the virus. That is it. That is the pandemic. Back in June, as part of the Blue Collar Conversation podcast on COVID-19 challenges to university students, we argued there should be refunds for students pushed online and no longer receiving face-to-face tutorials and seminars and that they should be paying open university prices approximately 1,500 per year rather than 9,25,000 per year. It seems universities didn't have a plan for their students in March, aside from a desperation not to offer a refund for the lack of quality and quantity of teaching. They care about the students, don't they? This was excusable in March, but inexcusable at the start of the new term this September. So we have this shameful position where students are stranded in university accommodation paying top whack to be under house arrest. Nearly 60,000 students in Liverpool alone. Lockdowns are not the solution. They are not working and would only cause far more problems. Well, they have caused far more problems already. Instead, we need to provide people with clear, concise and consistent guidelines rooted in real science, she might have added, and not just whatever they decide to come up with next.
a study here or a study there which just happens to come along just at the time they want to introduce the next stage. Instead, we need to provide people with clear, concise and consistent guidelines that the citizen or citizens can live by and follow but won't destroy their future and their jobs. We know much more about COVID-19 now than we did in March. People should keep their distance, wear masks and wash their hands. Well, I've talked about masks already in this episode and wash their hands with hand sanitizer, which the FDA has issued a recall of 132 brands because of how toxic they are. And in terms of keeping their distance... Robert Dingwall of NerveTag uh, Body Overseeing or Advising on Measures said that the two metre rule was plucked out of thin air. No science for it at all. One and a half metres, he says, does seem to have some science behind it, but you'd have to question it after the fact that two metres doesn't. Dingwall said he's seen no scientific evidence at all there's any reason for two metres. And he's working for NerveTag, which is a body advising on new and emerging respiratory virus threats, which is where the name comes from. An expert committee of the Department of Health advising the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, and through the Chief Medical Officer to Ministers. The article continues, We need to protect the most vulnerable, the over 70s, those with underlying health conditions, those from BAME communities and those who are obese. Now that would have been, if you accept there is a virus, the obvious solution from the start. That I agree with. If there is a virus out there, if you believe there is, then do that. And then the next sentence is the most important for everyone else. But within those broad principles, we should let people live their lives. The article concludes, Everton and Liverpool showed up a typically full-blooded, fiercely contested derby match. But after the match, both Blues and Reds were on the same side, knowing that the Tier 3 lockdown will be an own goal for the city, which would only lead to economic relegation. Well, the answer is non-compliance with our own, and the answer is non-compliance with our own enslavement. And what has happened in Liverpool in terms of protests and pushback against government-imposed restrictions and lockdown is what needs to happen everywhere. Look at the gym owner who kept his gym open despite government imposition telling him he had to close. Armed police turned up and he stood up to them and stayed open. Imagine if that spirit demonstrated in Liverpool played out in every city in the country even the majority. As I said in a speech I uploaded on the the night that the second lockdown was effectively announced on Halloween, and I don't think that was a coincidence. Business owners, now is the time to open up your businesses and make a statement to the psychopaths and idiots in Downing Street and Whitehall that you're not going to comply with the fascism and you're not going to watch your livelihood be taken away just because a few psychopaths and idiots tell you that you have to do it. In Liverpool, as with anywhere, the population is controlled by a tiny number of people. We have the numbers, we just have to use them in the form of mass peaceful non-compliance with fascism, mass peaceful non-compliance with measures being introduced on the basis of a scam merely to impose fierce limitation and control on the lives of the population for the sake of fierce limitation and control. I also said in that speech that people look at the world and ask how it's changed so fast in such a short space of time, but the key point to understand is that the speed of change is equally the same speed as the speed of the population's acquiescence to what has been imposed. This is great news because it means that government authority does not dictate how fast the fascism is imposed. We do, and if we decide we're not taking it any longer, it cannot happen any longer. They can only go as far as we let them go. And the more extreme it gets, the more of a challenge it's going to be to stand up to it. Humanity stands at a crossroads, and the decision humanity makes now decides the future for this planet and its population. If people want freedom and a life worth living, many people on this planet don't have now, then we need to get informed, those are not already, 
to make sure we know the truth of the situation we face and then make our feelings known to authority who can only impose their will on the population if the population give their power away to authority because they believe authority has power. It doesn't. It has our power and we need to take it back if we want freedom and bring an end to this nonsense. And the next subject this week is masks. This is in the Daily Mail. French women in uproar as they're forced to wear masks during labour, leaving them vomiting and unable to breathe as doctors threaten to leave them to give birth alone if they refuse. This is where we are so far. Women in France are being forced to wear masks during childbirth, with doctors given the power to refuse to treat anyone who chooses not to wear one. French mothers have expressed their outrage at the mask requirement, pointing out that someone exercising in a fitness centre in the country is exempt from wearing one, but pregnant women must wear one during childbirth, a practice which is not followed in the UK or the US. Yet. Critics, including medics and campaigners, argue that women are finding themselves in unnecessary distress, sometimes leading to them becoming too weak to push or having emergency cesarean sections. Instead, they suggest birthing teams should wear respirator masks and higher grade PPE instead. Mothers who have recently given birth under the new conditions have spoken out about their experiences. Maud, 30, gave birth in Nanterre, a, com- a commune in the Hood de Seine department in the western suburbs of Paris at the end of April. The management controller, who was unaware of the rules before the birth, was made to wear the same mask for 12 hours between 6pm and 6am, and she described her experience at the hospital as blackmail. She said it was made clear to her that if she did not wear a mask, she would have to give birth on her own because the doctors could choose not to treat her, and the hospital was understaffed and could not provide a replacement team. The mother, who declined to give her surname, said, As soon as I pushed the first time, I realised that it was going to be complicated and my instinct was to take off the mask to breathe. She said she was told, You have to keep your mask on, it's protocol. In the throes of childbirth, she agreed to put her mask back on and pushed again, but quickly realised that it was going to be complicated because she was breathing my own hot air. She was also breathing around carbon dioxide, which the body's trying to expel. She said that she tried again, but said, I had the feeling I was suffocating, I was very hot, I was sweating profusely under my mask, I was not managing it. I remember one point my partner took the mask off me because he could see that I was in distress, but he was told off for doing so. In the end, the doctor had to use forceps and my son was born with amniotic fluid in his lungs, a bump on his head from the forceps, and he had to be transferred to the neonatal service in another hospital because the hospital I was in did not have adequate facilities. Maud said, this was very traumatic for my partner and me. Before giving birth, we are taught to manage our breathing, and so to be in this situation was very traumatic. Maud also said that at the aftermath of the birth, it was difficult because her husband was not allowed to see her and her son was in another hospital. She said, I was alone in my room. While there has been a great deal of support shown to her plight and to that of other women, she said that some other women have also been critical, labelling her and other women who have been through similar ordeals as weak. She said women need to be more understanding of one another. They, the suffering and the trauma is real. Today, I don't know if I would be psychologically capable to have a second child given what I've been through. Fanny Rigott, appropriate name, 25, went to a private clinic for her birth and was told upon arrival that she would have to wear a mask for the whole stay, something which was non-negotiable. Well, why are the hospital staff not being threatened with legal action? Not least because of the effects on the mum and the baby as well during the birth process of having to wear a mask. She gave birth on April the 8th at the Clinique de Francesins, which is part of the private hospital de Versailles, a private facility in Versailles on the outskirts of the French capital Paris in the Evelyn's department. The mother, who has been unemployed since the end of August but previously worked in logistics for Renault, 
spent five days in hospital and had to wear the same mask throughout the entire ordeal. She said, it was very, very hard to breathe. I threw up a number of times. I could not catch my breath with a mask on. And in the end, it was decided that I had to have an emergency caesarean section. It must have been 98 Fahrenheit, 37 degrees in there. But when I tried to take my mask off, I was told off. They said that I would be spreading coronavirus everywhere. Fanny said medical personnel had all been wearing face masks, but that they were no more surgical masks and not respirator ones. Echoing the feelings of other mothers across the country, Fanny said she could not understand why people in fitness centres do not have to wear masks, but mothers giving birth do. The thing with all these contradictory rules is the obviously ridiculous rules. They want you to see that they are contradictory and ridiculous because if they can get people to still do it, then they have created a compliant population who will even do things that they can see are ridiculous. She said staff would withhold food until she put a mask on in spite of her weakened state when she was recovering in a room after her cesarean section, adding that neither the midwives nor, any, nor anyone else wanted to help me. There was blood everywhere, she added. I had to figure it out myself all alone in my room, and if someone came in when I did not have my mask on, they would stop dead until I put it on. Neither Maud nor Fanny have filed a formal complaint because they both said it would be futile. Another woman, Caroline, had a baby during the August night heat wave and claimed she was made to wear a mask in 40 degree temperatures without proper ventilation. She said after two epidural failures, the pain was unbearable and I was suffocating when I took deep breaths. After 13 minutes, I took the mask off. Clementine gave birth at the Necker Hospital in Paris at the beginning of September. She said the mask was soaked with sweat during the delivery. I had to change it twice. She also alleged that it was unnatural and that she had not even been able to kiss her baby because of the mask. Necker Hospital declined to comment on her allegations. They didn't deny it then. Hospitals have, however, previously defended the practice as a precaution to limit the spread of COVID-19 as there is not enough time to wait for a coronavirus test result when a woman comes in labour. Useless as that would be anyway. The National College of French Gynecologists and Obstetricians, however, has said that the situation is exceptional and that mask wearing during labour is desirable but cannot be enforced. Tell these nurses that. Mothers surveyed also criticised coronavirus policies around fathers who are often not allowed to see their newborn babies or partners, even in cases of complications causing lasting psychological damage and distress for new families. That's the idea. One woman commented, being in a single room, I do not understand why my husband could not be confined in my room, which would have allowed me to benefit from his support and for him to share the first four days of his son's life. I really feel we were robbed of the start of our life together. Targeting the family again. How many times have I talked about that in these pay-per-view episodes. Women's group, Tutte contre le violence obstetricale et gynecologiques, which in English means all against obstetrical and gynecological violence, has collected testimony from over 2,000 new and expectant mothers since September the 8th. The survey found that 75% of women who gave birth during the COVID-19 pandemic hoax, I added the last bit, show signs of postpartum depression, but campaign founder and spokesperson Sonia Bish noted that it is impossible to know what the statistic was before the pandemic because in France we do not assess this. Ms Bish, 40, said even six months after the start of the epidemic in France, our hospital is still not sufficiently equipped to protect healthcare workers from COVID-19. The French state abandons women who give birth. It lets them give life while being masked. Childbirth, however, requires an intense physical effort. We know how important breathing properly is during childbirth. 
Ms. Bish said that some mothers had even bought FFP2 grade equipment for medical staff and asked them to wear it instead, but doctors mostly refused. She added that it is astounding that in France you do not have to wear a face mask even if you are jogging or doing physical activity, but you do if you are giving birth, even though childbirth is an extremely demanding physical activity comparable to running a marathon. She said, we would like the Minister of Health to provide maternity maternity hospitals with FFP2 in order to protect nursing staff and to allow women who give birth not to wear a mask and to give birth in good conditions. There has been no word from our Minister of Health, Oliver Varane, since the start of the pandemic on French maternity hospitals, no directive to guide maternity hospitals on the wearing of masks nor on the presence of the dad during childbirth. No word from him since the start of the pandemic and no word since the publication of our survey and the controversy that has swelled in France since the launch of our campaign. Her organisation has created a hashtag called Stop Accouchement Mask, Stop Masked Birth, that has generated thousands of responses. They have also posted a list of mask enforcing hospitals to make it easier for expecting mothers to make an informed choice about where and under which circumstances they wish to give birth. Miss Bish said, out of 2,700 replies to our survey, we only had 10 people who tested positive for COVID-19 in a test not testing for the virus. In all the other cases, the mask wearing was merely a precautionary measure. In other words, they didn't need to wear it. Before the summer, 46% of women giving birth were made to wear face masks. Now that number has risen to over 80%, she said. 100% is where they wanted to go. She also provided a map of France showing the number of what they categorised as cases of obstetrical violence, meaning poor medical care or discriminatory practices that women reported to them. They are colour-coded ranging from green, zero to one cases of violence, to yellow, two to three cases of violence, to orange, more than four cases of violence per woman. And there's a map here, an image of a map with these colour-coded dots all over the country. The president of the National College of Midwives of France, Adrien Gantois, believes the figure is higher now than before the pandemic and has argued that the focus should be on protecting staff by giving them improved PPE, as they do in the UK and the US, and has called for a localised review of the practice. He said wearing a mask during delivery is not practical. The maternity hospitals that make it compulsory during this major physical exertion need to review their policy and prioritise the wearing of an FFP2 mask for the carers. Miss Bish said that maternity wards claim they do not have enough high-grade PPE equipment, so the Ministry of Health should step in and supply more. She said, in France, the health of women does not interest our government. If there were more women higher up, maybe there would be more empathy. Not necessarily. A link between mass wearing and complications during childbirth has not been published, but Miss Bish pointed out that no surveys have been conducted to determine women's satisfaction rates during childbirth in France at all. Miss Bish or Mrs. Bish even, who founded the collective after experiencing a medical act with the forceps without an anaesthetic during childbirth in 2015, told Real Press, it is important that women giving birth be treated well in France. I'm fighting for other women. I fight to spare other women because incidents like this during childbirth will destroy lives and cause trauma. France is struggling with coronavirus, the article continues, and is currently the 10th hardest hit country in the world. Cases, and the test not testing for the virus prompting the government to limit social interactions and impose heavy fines on people not wearing face masks in the public sphere. France currently has had just more than 770,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19. No, it has not confirmed cases. That, that's the way they use language, confirmed cases. Oh, well, it's a confirmed case. So on it, it must be, there must be a virus then. It must be real, this confirmed case. They must have the virus then. All confirmed case means is they tested positive with the test not testing for the virus. And then 
the result was checked and they said, yes, you have tested positive with a test, not testing for the virus. But they use the term confirmed cases all the time. It's a confirmed case. Oh, well, that means you must have it then. It doesn't at all. Whether it's a confirmed case or just a case is irrelevant. The fact is the test is not testing for the virus. France has also had around 37,200 deaths so far, with COVID-19 being written on the death certificate when people have died of other causes, and COVID-19 being diagnosed merely on symptoms, which come from a wide variety of other causes. They keep adding to the list of symptoms all the time. You know, what will they think of next? According to the latest Johns Hopkins University statistics, which is funded by Bill Gates, which is compiling the global alleged case and alleged death figures worldwide. This is an article on technocracy.news about a CDC study. Article's title is CDC study, overwhelming majority of COVID-19 patients wore masks. The Centers for Disease Control report, which is linked to in the article, released in September shows that masks and face coverings are not effective in preventing the spread of COVID-19. No, really? Never guessed that. Even for those people who consistently wear them. A study conducted in the United States in July found that when they compared 154 case patients who tested positive for COVID-19 in a test not testing for the virus to a control group of 160 participants from healthcare facilities who were symptomatic but tested negative, over 70% of the case patients were contaminated with the virus and fell ill, despite always wearing a mask. In the 14 days before illness onset, 71% of case patients and 74% of control participants reported always using cloth face coverings or other mask types when in public, the report stated. In addition, over 14% of the case patients said they often wore a face covering and were still infected with the virus according to a test not testing for the virus. The study also demonstrates that under 4% of the case patients became sick with the virus, even though they never wore a face covering or mask. Despite over 70% of the case patient participants' efforts to follow CDC recommendations by committing to always wearing face coverings at gatherings with less than 10 or more than 10 people in a home, shopping, dining, a restaurant, going to an office setting, salon, gym, bar, coffee shop or church, religious gathering or using public transportation, they still contracted the virus. While the study notes that some of these people may have contracted the virus from the few moments that they removed their mask to eat or drink at places that offer on-site eating or drinking, the CDC concedes that there is no successful way to evaluate if that was the exact moment someone became exposed and contracted the virus. But there's no way to evaluate if someone has contracted the virus because the test is not testing for the virus. Characterization of community exposures can be difficult to assess when widespread transmission is occurring, especially from asymptomatic persons within inherently interconnected communities, the report states. In fact, the report suggests that direction, ventilation and intensity of airflow might affect virus transmission even if social distancing measures and mask use are implemented according to current guidance. And the CDC report is called Community and Close Contact Exposures Associated with COVID-19 Among Symptomatic Adults Over 18 Years in 11 Outpatient Healthcare Facilities United States, July 2020. Now, it says on this page that the report has been corrected and an erratum has been published, but then you click on that and it, nothing comes up, basically. So that's the report that that article I've just read was talking about anyway. Now, here's a very significant article. This is on SOTT.net. German neurologist warns against wearing face masks. Oxygen deprivation causes permanent neurological damage. This is 
world-renowned neurologist Margareta Grace Brisson, who warns that masks cause oxygen deprivation and permanent neurological damage, especially in the developing brains of children. Now there's a video, a 23-minute video of this neurologist talking about this in the article as well. But this is what the article says. This is one of the most important posts I've ever made, so please read it. I have written a transcript of some highlights from Dr. Marguerite Grace Brisson's recent and extremely pressing video message, which was translated from German into English by Claudia Stober. Dr. Marguerite Grace Brisson, MD, PhD, is a consultant neurologist and neurophysiologist with a PhD in pharmacology, with special interest in neurotoxicology, environmental medicine, neuroregeneration, and neuroplasticity. This is what she has to say about face masks and their effects on our brains. The re-inhalation of our exhaled air will without a doubt create oxygen deficiency and a flooding of carbon dioxide. We know that the human brain is very sensitive to oxygen deprivation. There are nerve cells, for example, in the hippocampus that cannot be longer than three minutes without oxygen. They cannot survive. The acute warning symptoms are headaches, drowsiness, dizziness, issues in concentration, slowing down of reaction time, reactions of the cognitive system. However, when you have chronic oxygen deprivation, all of those symptoms disappear because you get used to it but your efficiency will remain impaired and the undersupply of oxygen in your brain continues to progress. We know that neurodegenerative diseases take years to decades to develop. If today you forget your phone number, the breakdown in your brain would have already started 20 or 30 years ago. While you're thinking that you have gotten used to wearing your mask and rebreathing your own exhaled air, the degenerative processes in your brain are getting amplified as your oxygen deprivation continues. What she's basically saying there is it gets to a point of such oxygen deprivation that you don't even realise it. The statement goes on. The second problem is that the nerve cells in your brain are unable to divide themselves normally. So in case our governments will generously allow us to get rid of the mass and go back to breathing oxygen freely again in a few months, the lost nerve cells will no longer be regenerated. What is gone is gone. Brain cells don't regenerate. They don't regrow. I do not wear a mask. I need my brain to think. I want to have a clear head when I deal with my patients and not be in a carbon dioxide induced anesthesia. There is no unfounded medical exemption from face masks because oxygen deprivation is dangerous for every single brain. It must be the free decision of every human being whether they want to wear a mask that is absolutely ineffective. It must be the free decision of every human being whether they want to wear a mask that is absolutely ineffective to protect themselves from a virus. For children and adolescents, masks are an absolute no-no. Children and adolescents have an extremely active and adaptive immune system, and they need a constant interaction with the microbiome of the earth. Their brain is also incredibly active, as it has so much to learn. The child's brain, or the youth's brain, is thirsting for oxygen. The more metabolically active the organ is, the more oxygen it requires. In children and adolescents, every organ is metabolically active. To deprive a child's or an adolescent's brain from oxygen, or to restrict it in any way, is not only dangerous to their health, it is absolutely criminal. Oxygen deficiency inhibits the development of the brain, and the damage that has taken place as a result cannot be reversed. The child needs the brain to learn, and the brain needs oxygen to function. We don't need a clinical study for that. This is simple, indisputable physiology. Consciously and purposely induced oxygen deficiency is an absolutely deliberate health hazard and an absolute medical contraindication. Contraindication basically means it shouldn't be happening.
An absolute medical contraindication in medicine means that this drug, this therapy, this method or measure should not be used and is not allowed to be used. To coerce an entire population to use an absolute medical contraindication by force, there must be definite and serious reasons for this, and reasons must be presented to competent interdisciplinary and independent, independent bodies to be verified and authorised. And as I've detailed in these pay-per-view episodes over the last several months, the science for SARS-CoV-2, very least, is very weak. I would say it doesn't exist. The statement continues. When, in 10 years, dementia is going to increase exponentially and the younger generations could not reach their God-given potential, it won't help to say we didn't need the masks. How can a veterinarian, a software distributor, a businessman, an electrical car manufacturer and a physicist decide on matters regarding the health of the entire population please dear colleagues we all have to wake up i know how damaging oxygen deprivation is for the brain cardiologists know how damaging it is for the heart pulmonologists know how damaging it is for the lungs oxygen deprivation damages every single organ well as i said earlier giving birth requires heavy breathing which is needed to assist the uterus and to provide support for the baby to be pushed through the womb so wearing a mask, thus limiting oxygen intake and carbon dioxide output, is one of the most counterproductive things you can do. But the mask also has symbolic, subconscious relevance as well. The mask is a symbol of being dehumanised and silenced. The mask limits human interactions, it covers half the face. The cult wants people to be dehumanised and silenced because it provides the easiest circumstances for control and it literally wants people dehumanised as part of the stepping stones on the road to the transhuman AI agenda which I talk about in great detail in the pay-per-view book, pay-per-view in print, now available at the pay-per-view website, pay-per-view.uk. I also talk about the effect of technology on the brain, especially of kids and young people and other subjects related to technology and talking about effects on the brain and psychology. I've talked before about government military mind control programs like MK Ultra, which I also talk about in the book, and an offshoot of that project called Project Monarch, and a survivor called Kathy O'Brien, and I've got her book actually, which she wrote in or published in 1995, and it was released in 1995 after the 1947 National Security Act was invoked, which actually started out as a court testimony from the U.S. Congressional Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Oversight. And the book is now in its 16th edition, referenced in major universities, and is in law libraries worldwide. And it was the first documented autobiography of a victim of MK Ultra Mind Control, U.S. Military Intelligence Government Mind Control. And Kathy O'Brien was in the mind control industry from an early age, when her Satanist paedophile father handed her over to the government after they threatened him with prosecution for child pornography. Kathy wrote the book after she was rescued from the program by her late husband, Mark Phillips, who passed away, I think, in 2018, who was an intelligence agency insider who helped her escape from the program and deprogrammed her. She came out recently and said that her daughter, Kelly, who was born literally in captivity, and into the mind control program from birth, was made to wear a mask from the age of two to remove her individuality and reduce the amount of oxygen sent to the brain, leading to her thinking being impacted, which is perfect for mind control, of course. Cathy pointed out that Michael Jackson, who was a victim of mind control, as entertainers, performers usually are, especially 
well-known and famous performers, but even amateur performers. Cathy pointed out the period that Michael Jackson went through when he was always wearing a mask. What happened to Cathy's daughter, Kelly, in terms of being forced to wear a mask is happening to children now all over the world. Children, as I talked about in the previous episode, are being psychologically rewired into the new normal. Children are seeing other children, and whereas before they would have conversed and played with them, instead now they're stopping still and don't know what to do because their brain has been rewired to change their behaviour. I've talked before a few times about epigenetics, where the brain can change in line with experience, and all these new policies allegedly to protect from the virus, even though viral particles are bigger than the pores in the mask, anyway, are in truth to psychologically rewire the population, especially children, and change their behaviour. Epigenetics also applies to babies in the womb, and so imagine the effect on the baby in the womb of the extra trauma of the mother caused by wearing a mask. Epigenetics can also pass on personality and psychological traits to the next generation, so it's not just a compliant, acquiescent population being generated now, but a future compliant, acquiescent population being generated now. That's how epigenetics works. The UK government, specifically the Cabinet Office, runs an organisation called the Behavioural Insights Team, which is responding to the pandemic officially, but in truth is devising methods of psychological manipulation and behavioural modification. When people say we're following all the government guidelines, like businesses say that, for example, what they mean is they've done no research and thinking of their own into either the official virus story or the guidelines themselves, and they're just allowing themselves to be psychologically and behaviorally manipulated and modified, including children. Some business owners will see the nonsense, but they'll be scared of not following the government guidelines. And then there's some who are pushing back against it. There needs to be more, but at least it's starting to happen. Like in Liverpool, for example, parents need to ask themselves, those who can see this, are they going to allow their children to be subject to this psychological manipulation, which is designed to change their psychology and behaviour for life? Or are they going to summon some backbone and courage and refuse to acquiesce with it? Parents forming groups and coming together to refuse to acquiesce is the most effective way to do it. And also parents saying to the schools, and meaning it, that our kids are not coming to school as long as it as long as it continues to be a vehicle for their psychological manipulation and behavioural modification. And I know there's some parents who would say, because I've heard it, oh, but what if they, social services, take my child? I talk about social services stealing children from loving parents in, in pay-per-view in print. What if they take my child for going against what authority says? As if them going to school in these circumstances is much better, and it's only going to get worse in schools. I would ask, when women in France giving birth are being told to wear a mask, where are the men? Where are the fathers in all this? When the hospital staff refuse to assist the mother if she won't wear a mask, the hospital staff should be threatened with legal action because of the effects on the mother and the baby in the hospital. The hospital staff not assisting the birth, which is what the public are paying them to do, by the way, in France. It's interesting that it often is the women women who are standing up to authority in the state. For example, those in the anti-vaccination movement again and again are women. Those standing up to the stealing of children by social services are women in many, many cases. I've talked before about the effect on male masculinity and the attacks on what they call toxic masculinity. 
which is all part of this deletion of the traits of masculinity, which means men standing up for themselves and refusing to be told what to do for the sake of it. That's the part of masculinity that's really being targeted. Those traits are being targeted on purpose as part of creating this acquiescence. One of the effects of children wearing masks will be a rise in respiratory problems for younger and younger people, which will then be called COVID-19, allowing for even more and much greater impositions of fascism. By causing the respiratory problems for kids in the first place with a mask, and then exploiting those kids to sell increasing imposition, which will massively damage kids even more. And that's why people involved in orchestrating and imposing this must go before a Nuremberg-type trial for crimes against humanity when this is all over. The scale of psychopathy is unimaginable for many people that has orchestrated all this. Not just the mass, but the whole pandemic hoax. But it's a glimpse into the mentality running our world, and it's about time it wasn't. And we can make a start on that by getting the people involved in orchestrating it and imposing it before a Nuremberg-type trial. And the next subject this week is... And the next subject this week is hospital admissions. This is in the Daily Mail. Staggering cost of course to protect the NHS. Hospital admissions for serious illnesses fell by up to 90% during COVID-19 first wave amid fears lockdown warning backfired. Hospital admissions plummeted by up to 90% for some of the deadliest conditions and illnesses during the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic, sparking fears that governments protect the NHS message, stay home message may have backfired. While Britons were told to stay home, protect the NHS and save lives, a message used at the height of lockdown in April to discourage households from mixing, the number of heart attack checks reduced by almost half. Heart disease, a major cause of heart attacks, is the leading cause of death in the UK. Meanwhile, consultations for the most common cancers also dropped by up to two-thirds. The figures, which come from analysis of data published in the Daily Telegraph today, have been described as staggering by experts, some of whom warn the UK can see 35,000 more cancer deaths within a year as a knock-on effect of the pandemic. Others have warned that the government must get the messaging right and urge those in need of medical treatment to speak to their doctor. The research by healthcare analyst Dr Foster shows that during April and May, the height of the first coronavirus wave in the UK, there was a sharp drop in emissions related to a number of diseases. The number of emissions for bowel cancer, which is the UK's second biggest cancer killer, dropped by 39%, normally 13,488 cases would have been expected, but there were 8,185 cases. Admissions for prostate cancer, the most common form of cancer in men, also dropped sharply. Around 12,850 cases would have been expected based on a five-year average, but the figure dropped by 64% to 4,640. Admissions for breast cancer, which is the most common cancer in women, also dropped by a third. The largest drop was in gastrointestinal disorders emissions, which were down 90%. The drop took place while the government's initial stay home, protect the NHS, save lives message was in place. The slogan was announced as the country entered a national lockdown in March to encourage people to follow the rules, which initially included a ban on households mixing while people were only allowed to leave their homes for essential journeys. The message was later changed to stay alert, control the virus, save lives, as the government began to ease restrictions. When GP, Dr Amir Khan, not the boxer, GP, has today said the reason many people may have stayed away from hospitals during the first wave of the pandemic was due to fears they would be a burden on the already strained NHS. But he stressed the importance of getting the message right amid rising COVID-19 infection rates from a test not testing for the virus and urged those in need of medical treatment to speak to their GP. Speaking to Dale Good Morning Britain, he said it's a difficult one to get right. The NHS is trying its best to get the message out to say that GP surgeries are open. 
yes, most people will need to have a phone call first, but those people who need to be seen will be seen. He added, the kind of things that are making people think twice about speaking to their doctor or their healthcare is that they are worried about being a burden on the NHS and they don't want to do that as they feel it is stretched already. They were also worried about coming into clinical environment and perhaps exposing themselves to COVID-19. If you're worried about any symptoms, then you must speak to your GP. He says, he also warned against the cancelling operations and procedures in order to facilitate extra COVID-19 patients instead calling for more staff and funding for the NHS. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom Binstead, director of strategy and analytics at Dr. Foster, told The Telegraph that some of the figures were staggering with foreseen across the board. An NHS spokesman said at the height of the first COVID-19 peak and lockdown, some people chose to postpone care. But since then, hospital admissions have now rebounded. Routine operations have more than doubled and captured treatments are now taking place at well above usual levels. It comes as it was revealed that nearly 27 million GP appointments have been lost during the coronavirus pandemic, fueling fears of a ticking time bomb of cancer deaths. NHS Digital estimates that there were 26.7 million fewer GP appointments in England between March and August this year than in the same period in 2019, down from 146.2 million to 119.5 million. Cancer Research UK said more than 350,000 people who would normally have been urgently referred to a specialist to have vital tests to check if they have the disease have not been. The charity believes that delays could cause an additional 35,000 avoidable deaths at the hands of cancer. Inspectors also fear that lost appointments with doctors have led to a significant deterioration in patients' health and the worsening of other conditions such as asthma and diabetes. Mm -hmm. The statistics were revealed in a major report by the Care Quality Commission, which warned of a huge pent-up demand for care since the March lockdown. People have struggled to see a GP because of COVID-19 precautions that have moved a huge chunk of appointments online. Social distancing and strict cleaning rules mean family doctors can only see a fraction of the normal volume of patients in their practices. Others have been scared off seeing their GP for fear of being a burden on the health service or catching COVID-19. The NHS statistics show that even in August, when the country was enjoying a spell of no lockdowns and low transmission, GPs had 2.7 million fewer appointments than in the same month in 2019. Those figures include phone and video consultations, which made up almost half of appointments in August. The watchdog said, as well as COVID-19 restrictions making it harder to get an appointment, many Britons were still fearful of using healthcare in case they caught the virus. Mm. Experts have previously said that the government's successful Stay Home, Protect the NHS, Save Lives slogan was so powerful that it had started to become a detriment because people were still in the mindset of trying to avoid burdening the health service. Mm -hmm. Dr. Rosie Bennyworth, Chief Inspector of Primary Care of the QCC, said, We know there has been a reduction in cancer referrals and that is likely to have an impact longer term on people getting appropriate cancer diagnosis and treatment. We know that people sometimes have not had their long-term conditions followed up and that is likely to also have a long-term impact. It's really important that actually all the needs of the people are met and not just the people with COVID-19. CQC Chief Executive Ian Trenholm added, As the country lockdown, the number of GP appointments fell significantly. And there was a very, very definite move towards non-face-to-face -face appointments, be that on the telephone or video and online. If looked at across the whole of the year, the number of lost GP appointments translates into millions of people potentially not seeing their GP, not getting conditions diagnosed early enough, not getting those referrals for diagnoses like cancer and other conditions. The CQC PEP praised the way GPs adopted innovation and technologies and new consultations online, but warned that such approaches were inappropriate for many patients. Dr. Jennifer Dixon, Chief Executive of the Health Foundation, said, There is now a huge and growing backlog of people who need NHS care, which is built up because of the pandemic. No, it's built up because of the response to the alleged pandemic. It's a very different thing.
But Martin Marshall, Chairman of the Royal College of GP, stressed that 400,000 patients. But Martin Marshall, Chairman of the Royal College of GP, stressed that 400,000 patients were being seen face to face every day. The professor added, GPs and their teams worked incredibly hard from the start of the pandemic, changing the way they deliver services in order to keep patients as safe as possible, stop the spread of the virus, and allow staff to continue working delivering patient care. It comes after a Cancer Research UK report on Monday found up to 3 million people have missed out on cancer screening for all forms of the disease since the end of March, and more than 350,000 people who would normally be urgently referred to hospital with suspected cancer symptoms weren't. Charity fears up to 35,000 extra deaths may be caused because hospitals cancelled virtually all procedures, including checkups and operations, to cope with the coronavirus crisis when it first struck in, struck in the spring. But the worry figures come amid increasing reports of hospitals cancelling non urgent operations following a rise in coronavirus infections from a test not testing for the virus. Several hospitals are expecting a surge in COVID-19 patients leading to the cancellation of operations which have already been delayed for six months. University Hospital's Plymouth NHS Trust, for example, said it was temporarily pausing non-critical planned surgery at Derryford Hospital, although day case procedures are still going ahead. And Liverpool University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust Chief Executive Steve Warburton told staff in a memo that it had reached a critical point and would be scaling back planned procedures. It comes as daily coronavirus deaths could reach up to 690 this month. Says who? Scientists have warned as ONS data recorded a 50% weekly rise in infections. Well, who are the scientists? Who are they connected to? Do they have any financial interests? And a 50% weekly rise in infections from a test not testing for the virus. The Medical Research Council Biostatistics Unit at Cambridge University presented SAGE with a bleak forecast as they published new predictions on how fast the virus is spreading. The only thing that said is that says it's spreading is a test not testing for the virus. They estimate that 47,000 people in England are contracting COVID-19 every day with cases doubling in under seven days. Honestly, it's a nightmare telling these patients they are going to have to wait again. A heart surgeon who works in the northwest of England told the Times. A critical care nurse in Lancashire added, We are absolutely packed. I don't even want to think about where we'll be in two weeks' time. Well, you'll be where you allow yourself to be. It comes as Britain recorded its highest number of coronavirus deaths for more than it comes as Britain recorded its highest number of coronavirus deaths for more than four months after another 150 victims were announced, either being diagnosed on symptoms from other causes, or a test not testing for the virus, saying they're positive and then dying, or COVID-19 being written on the death certificate when people have died of other causes. Department of Health statistics show this many deaths have not been registered since June the 10th, when 164 lab-confirmed fatalities were added to the toll. Health Sheets also posted another 16,000 lab confirmed. What does that mean? A test not testing for the virus says they're positive. Meanwhile, public health officials in Leeds said hospitals in the city were now very close to having cut back on non-COVID-19 services. The huge demand of services was forcing clinicians to consider how to save the most lives directly or indirectly from COVID-19. One said, well, that's easy because nobody's died of COVID-19. Just days ago, the Royal College of Surgeons of England warned there could be a tsunami of cancelled operations this winter as the NHS struggles to cope with the second wave of coronavirus which will be fabricated in exactly the same way as the first wave was. The cancellations will add to the growing backlog, with more than 4.2 million people on the waiting list and 110,000 of these having waited for over a year. However, tens of thousands of NHS staff are absent from work because they are infected with COVID-19 or they have to self-isolate. Well, even if they were at work, they wouldn't be doing anything, making dancing videos a lot of the time, and sat there twiddling their thumbs because they got nothing to do. NHS England's medical director recently warned hospitals in the northwest and northeast could end up treating more patients than they did during the peak of the first wave of COVID-19. Well, that wasn't very many to start with.
Professor Stephen Powers said the NHS remained open for all patients, but keeping coronavirus infections under control is the key to other patients getting the treatment they need. Then stop testing with a test not testing for the virus, and then there will be no coronavirus cases on that subject. Here's an article in the Daily Mail. Truth about the claims scaring us all to death, soaring infections, teeming hospital wards and terrifying death rates. But did the numbers justifying crippling new lockdowns really stand up to scrutiny? With half of Britain plunged into stricter lockdowns, you could be forgiven for thinking that amidst all the doom and gloom, the threat of COVID-19 has never been so severe. But as Ross Clark reveals, things might not be anywhere near as bad as their fear mongers would have you think. On paper, the 95% statistic Revealed by Liverpool City Councillor Paul Brandt, conjures up a disturbing image of overflowing hospitals and inadequate care. So rest assured that it bears no relation to reality. So rest assured that it bears no relation to reality. Liverpool University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust dismissed Mr Brandt's claim, insisting that its units were only 80% full, with just 47 of its 61 critical care beds occupied. That may still seem high, but it is actually perfectly normal for ICU beds to be full at this time of year. Last year, for example, 51 out of 59 ICU beds in Liverpool's hospitals were full, while in 2018 it was 52 out of 59 beds. Meanwhile, if there was a surge in demand for intensive care beds for COVID-19 patients, let's not forget how quickly the NHS was able to repurpose general and acute care hospital beds during the first coronavirus spike. In fact, Liverpool's Aintree University Hospital revealed that it has already fitted 40 beds with ventilators and a further 30 beds with specialist CPAP breathing equipment. Claim the COVID-19 death rate is actually high. Reality, it really is not. Such fears date all the way back to March when the World Health Organization morosely announced at a press conference that the virus had a mortality rate of 3.2%. But that figure was based on a crude calculation that divides the number of deaths by the number of confirmed cases of infection. Cases of infection from a test not testing for the virus. As we know from antibody tests, and there's a lot to question about antibody tests as well, which showed that many people have had COVID-19 without knowing it and without being tested. Most cases have actually gone unrecorded. To accurately work out the death rate, you must focus on something called the infection fatality rate, which is the number of deaths divided by the number of actual cases from a test not testing for the virus. Scientists at Imperial College of London originally estimated the IFR for COVID-19 at 0.9%, and an updated estimate has put it at 0.66%, and many even believe the figure to be far lower. One paper published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization by John Ioannidis, a professor of medicine at Stanford University, reviewed 61 studies from around the world that have calculated the IFR. His analysis shows that their median, the middle figure, value for the IFR is 0.27, suggesting that only four in every thousand people who have been infected with COVID-19 have died from it. There are two points there. 0.27 if you're 70 or over. If you're under 70. Well, the well the last figure I saw was 0.004%. But every time there's a positive case, that figure drops. Every time there's a positive case, the person does not go to hospital, is not symptomatic and doesn't die. That number drops. Claim a second spike could cause twice as many deaths. Reality, far fewer people are dying now. This disturbing claim dates back to a report from July by the Academy of Medical Scientists and commissioned by Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Valance, which estimated there could be 119,000 deaths if a second spike coincided with the peak of winter flu. 
Well, they know it will coincide with the peak of winter flu because what they'll do, as they did last time, is redesignate flu deaths as COVID-19 deaths. Yet to reach the figures, the so-called second wave would have to get significantly worse than it currently is. On Thursday, only 138 people died who were tested positive for COVID-19, with the test not testing for COVID-19, in the past 28 days. In comparison, at the height of this epidemic in the spring, there were more than 1,000 deaths a day. Such an improvement is hardly surprising, given that treatments have improved and that many of the most vulnerable people will, sadly, have already died in the first peak. Claim the current wave of infection will tear through the elderly. Reality, we are far better prepared this time around. In response to the signing of the Great Barrington Declaration by more than 3,000 scientists, which called on governments to abandon one-size-fits-all lockdowns in favour of targeted shielding, Professor Stephen Powis, National Medical Director of NHS England, described the claim that the elderly can somehow just be fenced off from risk as wishful thinking. Of course the elderly are considerably more vulnerable to COVID-19. No, the elderly are considerably more vulnerable from the endless causes of death that elderly people are usually vulnerable to that has been labelled COVID-19. Indeed, the average age of a coronavirus victim, according to analysis by the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, is 82.4 years. But then the average age of death in Britain is 82. But does this really warrant widespread panic? After all, it is significantly higher than the average age reached by people recorded as dying from all other causes, which is 81 and a half. What I just said, 81 and 82. And don't forget that a large portion of deaths among the elderly patients in the spring occurred because they were discharged from hospitals to care homes. I've mentioned this before, without being tested, and also because care home staff, many of whom did not have adequate protective equipment, were working across several care homes. But now elderly patients are routinely tested before being discharged to care homes, and the Department of Health's winter plan has banned staff from working in more than one care home setting, which should help stop the spread of COVID-19 from home to home. But the spread of COVID-19 is dictated by a test not testing for COVID-19. Claim hospitals are less prepared than this time in March. Reality, doctors are far better equipped to fight the virus. An unnamed doctor at the Royal Liverpool Hospital was quoted as saying that before the first peak, elective surgery was curtailed, so the hospital was pretty empty. Staff were redeployed, but this time there was no real curtailment of any elective work. Yet before we start jumping to any apocalyptic conclusions about the readiness of our hospitals, it's worth remembering that this is just one view of one doctor in one hospital. Contrary to his panic statement, it's undeniably the case that intensive care doctors have learned a huge amount about how to treat COVID-19 over the past few months, such as when and when not to put patients on ventilators. Claim there's no such thing as immunity. Reality, the chances of reinfection are low. Claim there's no such thing as immunity. Reality, the chances of reinfection are low. When it was revealed that a 25-year-old man in the U.S. caught COVID-19 for the second time, it led University of Nevada's Dr. Mark Pandori to warn that there could be significant implications for our understanding of COVID-19 immunity. But it is worth noting that researchers in Nevada have admitted that they are not entirely sure that the patient was actually reinfected. Instead, they said there's a chance that the virus from his first infection had lain dormant and become reactivated inside his body. More importantly, if being infected with COVID-19 did not give us immunity, at least for the short term, we would know it by now. After all, there must be a reason why hundreds of thousands of people who have suffered from COVID-19 are not suffering second or third batch of the disease. Some people test positive with the test not testing for the virus and self-isolate 14 days, 10 days, 14 days and test again and test positive again. Because they're testing for the same genetic sequence or sequences that they had before in their body same genetic material that is nothing to do with causing them an illness just there in the body and they're testing positive for that 
once self-isolating and then testing positive again because they're testing positive for the same genetic material they had before and have still got. Now, I keep saying, but it's a message which really needs to be understood. The test is not testing for the virus. You might have noticed I said that. Um, but what is the test testing for then, is the question. Well, this is a brilliant article by Dr. Thomas Cowan. He was an MD, medical doctor, attended Duke University, graduating with a degree in biology, has a general medical practice, He's given countless lectures and workshops throughout America about a variety of subjects on health and medicine and is the author of five books, four of which spent time on the Amazon bestseller lists and each were ranked number one in their respective categories often for many months. And he kind of plays off the work of Dr. Andrew Kaufman, who I've mentioned before. Andrew Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N. And he wrote this brilliant article recently called Only Poison Monkey Kidney Cells Grew the Virus. And he says this, This week, my colleague and friend Sally Fallon Morell brought to my attention an amazing article from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in America, which is an offshoot of the World Health Organization. The article was published in June 2020. The purpose of the article was for a group of about 20 virologists to describe the state of the science of the isolation, purification and biological characterization of the new SARS-CoV-2 virus, which they say causes COVID-19, and to share this information with other scientists for their own research. A thorough and careful reading of this important paper reveals some shocking findings. First, in the section titled Whole Genome Sequencing, we find that rather than having isolated the virus and sequencing the genome from end to end, that the CDC designed 37 pairs of nested PCRs spanning the genome on the basis of the coronavirus reference sequence, which has been uploaded to a scientific database. To me, this computer generation step constitutes scientific fraud. Here is an analogy. A group of researchers claim to have found a unicorn because they found a piece of a hoof, a hair from a tail, and a snippet of a horn. They then add that information into a computer program, program it to recreate the unicorn, and they then claim this computer recreation is the real unicorn. Of course, they have never actually seen a unicorn, so could not possibly have examined its genetic makeup to compare their samples with the actual unicorn's hair, hooves, and horn. Now... There are alleged images of the virus you may have seen. I'm going to get into where they come from in a minute. There's a few different answers to that question. The researchers claim they decided which is the real genome of SARS-CoV-2 by consensus, sort of like a vote. Again, different computer programs will come up with different versions of the imaginary unicorn, so they come together as a group and decide which is the real imaginary unicorn. <laughs> now... As ridiculous as that sounds, that analogy describes how they found the genome for this alleged virus. And what they've done is, you take a body sample, I've talked about this before I think, but it's worth saying again. You take a body sample, say lung fluid, if you're talking about a pneumonia, you like disease, you take lung fluid, you might take sputum as well, coughed up material, phlegm and things like that, but let's say you take lung fluid. And you don't filter it, you don't isolate a virus from it away from any other material that would be in that sample. And you don't put it through a, through a centrifuge, which is basically a machine which spins the sample material and it has a density gradient so that different material is basically ranked according to its density within the machine. So the viral particles, if they're in there, will form a band and then you can take a pipette and suck them out and then 
look at them under a microscope. That's called purification because then you know anything that comes from that from those particles must be viral particles. But you don't do that. You just take the sample, and what you do is you extract samples of RNA. Now you've got no way of knowing without going through that process I've just described. A bit more detailed than that, but that's the that's the basic procedure. You've got no way of knowing without going through that process that the RNA comes from a virus. And you've got a database of other RNA viral sequences that have been identified or not identified in the same way. So even if you did isolate and purify the viral particles and take the RNA sequence directly from within the viral particles... You've got nothing to compare them to because the other RNA sequences have been taken from samples, not viruses. But they only take small snippets of RNA, not entire genomes. They say they took 37 base pairs of RNA when the entire genome sequence of the virus is said to be around 30,000. And the computer program filled in the gaps. And... Because random RNA sequences are being taken from samples, then this is why different experiments come up with different sequences. And what happens then is eventually it's decided which is the real sequence, in the words of Cowan, which is the real imaginary unicorn. And then he says the real blockbuster finding in this study, even after what I've just said, comes later. A finding so shocking that I had to read it, Cowan says, many times before I could believe what I was reading. Let me quote the passage intact, he says. So this is the passage. It's scientific, but then Cowan explains it. Therefore, we examine the capacity of SARS-CoV-2 to infect and replicate in several common primate and human cell lines, including human adenocarcinoma cells, a549, human liver cells, HUH 7.0, and human embryonic kidney cells, HEK293T. In addition to VROE6, there are common type of cells that are used, VROE6, monkey kidney cells, and VROCCL81 cells. Each cell line was inoculated at high multiplicity of infection and examined 24 hours post-infection. No CPE, cytopathic effects, were observed in any of the cell lines except in Vero cells, which grew to greater than 10 to the 7th power at 24 hours post-infection. In contrast, HUH 7.0 and 293T showed only modest viral replication, and A549 cells were incompatible with SARS-CoV-2 infection. What does this language actually mean, Cowan says, and why is it the most shocking statement of all from the virology community? When virologists attempt to prove infection, they have three possible hosts or models on which they can test. The first is humans. Exposure to humans is generally not done for ethical reasons and has never been done with SARS-CoV-2. The second possible host is animals. Forgetting for a moment that they never actually use purified virus when exposing animals, they do use solutions that they claim contain the virus. But how do they know that if they've not worked with purified samples? Exposure to animals has been done once with SARS-CoV-2 in an experiment that used mice. I've read this paper, by the way, I know that it exists. The researchers found that none of the wild normal mice got sick. In a group of genetically modified mice, a statistically insignificant number lost some fur. Classic sign of COVID-19, losing fur, even though they keep adding to the symptoms all the time. Losing hair will be a new symptom before long, you watch. 
they experienced nothing like the illness called COVID-19. The third method virologists use to prove infection and pathogenicity, the method they most rely on, and I'm going to get into this again in a minute, is inoculation of solutions they say contain the virus onto a variety of tissue cultures. As I have pointed out many times, such inoculation has never been shown to kill the tissue unless the tissue is first starved and poisoned. The shocking thing about the above quote, scientific quote, is that using their own methods, the virologists found that solutions containing SARS-CoV-2, they say, even in high amounts, were not, I repeat, not infective to any of the three human tissue cultures they tested. In plain English, this means they proved on their terms that this new coronavirus is not infectious to human beings. It is only infective to monkey kidney cells, and only then when you add two potent drugs, gentamicin and amphotericin, known to be toxic to kidneys, to the mix. If you were carrying out an experiment to find the truth, and you were not taking shortcuts, why would you, in a culture, testing the effect on kidney cells, use drugs toxic to kidneys? The experiment is to test the effect of the virus on cells, not to test the effect of drugs on cells. What they do in these culture experiments is they'll take material they say contains the virus. They won't isolated, purified viral material in. And they'll put it in a tissue culture because you can't just put viral particles in a tissue culture or, or a culture even like a petri dish and just see what happens because unlike bacteria which can be grown in a pure culture because they're alive viruses are not living they're not alive so they need host cells they usually use monkey kidney cells as i said they will put this alleged viral material in the tissue culture and they will put drugs like antibiotics and bovine calf serum which itself can have all kinds of material and they will put these other drugs like avotericin and gentamicin in there and they will observe the effects over a certain period of time and obviously when you've got toxic poison material with cells there will be an effect and they then say that's the effect of the viral material on the cells and obviously this toxicity and poisoning of the cells will generate the release of certain types of particles like exosomes I recommend watching the video Humanity is Not a Virus on Andrew Kaufman, MD.com, who explains what exosomes are in a presentation. Exosomes are very, very similar to viral particles, but there are other types of particles that will be released by the cells in response to this toxicity and poisoning. And what then happens, they'll zoom in on the culture under an electron microscope and they'll find all these kind of particles that they can see. And what they'll then say is this or that type of particle is the viral particle. Look, we've taken this electron micrograph image of the viral particles. Look, see, there it is. You can't argue with that, can you? Well, actually, I can, because without isolating and purifying the viral particles, you've got no way of knowing what you're looking at. But what you do know for certain is that there will be exosomes and other particles released by the cells in response to this toxicity and poisoning that can then be claimed to be the viral particles. That's where a lot of these images of the SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 virus have come from. There's also, I discovered, 
by doing a bit of research on where these images come from. Something called clathrin coated vesicles. They even have what look like the spikes of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And I came across this scientific website article that talks about this. But I do recommend Googling clathrin coated vesicles. And there's another type called COPI, COPI coated vesicles and COPII, COPI coated vesicles. They look kind of similar. But this is what this article says. This is the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology website. Caution in identifying coronaviruses by electron microscopy. We are concerned about the erroneous identification of coronavirus directly in tissues by authors using electron microscopy. Directly in tissues. Exactly what I just said, tissue cultures. Several recent articles have been published that purport to have identified SARS-CoV-2 directly in tissue. Most describe particles that resemble but do not have the appearance of coronaviruses. The evidence exosomes can look very similar as well. The evidence provided in the article by Farkash et al. in JASN likewise does not confirm the presence of SARS-CoV-2 in kidney tissue. Coronaviruses have been carefully described in electron microscopic images of thin sections. It shows an image here of electron micrograph, which is believed to be the virus, but is actually something very different. In the article by Farkasotel, the electron microscopic images that they provided do not demonstrate coronaviruses. Rather, the structure described as viruses are clathrin-coated vesicles, normal subcellular organelles involved in intracellular transport, basically communicating with cells, which is what exosomes do as well. Additionally, Farkash et al. Do document their findings by referring to an article by Sue that purports to have identified coronavirus in kidney. Likewise, that article shows only normal cell structures that, to the non-electron microscopist virologist, may resemble coronavirus. Their interpretation has been refuted in letters to the editor of Kidney International. Identification of viruses is not always straightforward. Consideration should be given to the mechanism of virus production, including the location inside of cells as well as the appearance. Care should be taken to prevent mistaking cell organelles for viral particles. Other images of the virus are just straight up computer generated. So there's all these ways to apparently present an image of the virus that is not actually the virus. And the virus has never, ever been isolated, purified, and visualized, taken from a purified viral particle. We've never done it that way. So to answer the question, what is the test testing for, if not the virus? In other words, the viral genetic sequence. It's testing for these sequences of RNA that are taken from samples without being filtered and isolated and purified. Claim, we will never get to herd immunity reality. We should not rule it out. Speaking to the House of Commons earlier this week, Health Secretary Matt Hancock made the preposterous claim that herd immunity is a flawed goal without a vaccine, even if we can get to it, which we can. He backed this up by suggesting that a number of infectious diseases such as measles never reach herd immunity. Since then, Mr Hancock has been corrected by Harvard University's Dr Martin Coldorf and Stanford's Dr J. Batakaria, who have pointed out that in the days before vaccine outbreaks and measles did end before everyone got infected due to herd immunity. 
Meanwhile, although the government's scientific advisors have claimed herd immunity could be reached if around 60% of us have been infected, other scientists believe the figure to be much lower. According to modelling by Gabriela Gomez of the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, we could gain heart herd immunity when just 10 to 20% of us have had the disease. Claim long COVID may leave millions suffering from symptoms for years. Reality serious cases are very uncommon. According to a report published by the National Institute for Health Research, there could be significant psychological and social impacts on people living with long-term COVID-19 where their recovery is drawn out. But while the phrase long COVID may have a terrifying ring to it, it is essential to note that delayed recovery is not uncommon with viral illnesses. Meanwhile, don't be fooled into thinking that such a prolonged reaction to COVID-19 is common. In fact, many people infected with COVID-19, up to, up to 80% according to some studies, don't suffer any symptoms in the first place. No, because it's never got anything. Claim only a circuit breaker will stop the virus. Reality, it will only delay the inevitable. Claudia Paloni, president of the Hospital Consultants and Specialists Association, grimly warned that we find ourselves in an inimitable situation in that locking down the entire country for two weeks will buy ourselves some time and suppress the virus. Moreover, Matt Keeling, a mathematician at the University of Warwick, recently estimated that a two-week circuit breaker could save 8,000 lives. Yet even SAGE, the government's scientific advisory group for emergencies, which called for a temporary circuit breaker lockdown, admits that doing so would only delay the epidemic by 28 days. In other words, by the end of October, we would merely be back within the infection rate we had at the beginning of the month. Claim, by locking down more quickly, the Scottish and Welsh governments have handled the pandemic better. Claim, infections are running higher now than when Britain went into lockdown in March. Reality, there is an increase in cases, but only because we are testing more. Testing more is the test not testing for the virus. Yes, it's true that the current number of recorded infections that is at its highest ever. But that's principally because we are now carrying out more than a quarter of a million tests a day compared to less than 6,000 a day in mid-March. Even in April, fewer than 10,000 people a day were being tested in Britain. So while the number of positive tests coming back may seem significantly higher now, we are detecting more cases because we are testing more. What we're looking at with the chaos of hospital appointments and consultations being cancelled and the effect of that and all the chaos that's happened is to wind people up to the point where when the Bill Gates vaccine is offered as a route out of lockdown and the associated chaos, then people will be far more willing to take it than they would otherwise. The government know the effect of lockdowns and they know it will kill and has killed and caused the suffering of many tens of thousands of people. But they impose the lockdown anyway because they're criminal psychopaths in Britain and America, etc. The NHS was not overwhelmed during the first wave. Hospitals were empty as citizen journalists who filmed the inside of hospitals proved and doctors and nurses who spoke out said the claim that lockdown needs to be implemented because of the rising cases and to stop the NHS being overwhelmed holds absolutely no water whatsoever. And the government know that, but they're intent on a lockdown anyway because Gates wants it and they have no consideration for the victims of lockdown. Many of which, by the way, will be labelled as COVID-19 victims and deaths. And the whole sorry saga continues. These prophets of doom must be held accountable for their actions when all this is over. Hospitals cancelled appointments because of infections when those infections came from a test or testing for the virus. I keep pointing that out. Why? Because the key point to make is the infections are not coming from people coming into contact with people with the virus. They're not coming from people coming into contact with the virus from surfaces like work surfaces, etc. They come from this useless test. That's the point. The test is the pandemic. Infections are the fake cases that the test is producing. The NHS 
will be overwhelmed when the consequences of the lockdowns and people not going for consultations or appointments comes to bear. The solution offered then will be privatising the NHS, which has been the plan all along. And, you know, time and time again, those who bothered to look at and listen to alternative information and perspectives on what's happening and why have called each stage of the government's policy on COVID-19 long before while it's all explained by the government and presented in the mainstream media, which are coming from the same perspective, government and mainstream media, as spontaneous and random. How could the alternative media have called it at each stage? Because we're looking at an unfolding script. It's all planned. They're not responding to infections or this projection or this data. That's the excuse. Each stage is planned, and each stage only unfolds as long as the people allow it to unfold. And the longer people do nothing, the more extreme it will get. Masks are recommended to stop the spread of the virus when there has been a rise in cases. So how does that work? Because the cases come from a test, not testing for the virus. So it doesn't matter whether or not you wear a mask, socially distance, use hand sanitizer or lockdown or don't. It's because the test is going to continue to produce false positives, fake cases, whatever people do. And while the test is producing fake cases, real illnesses are being missed and people are not going to hospitals or doctors because they don't want to catch the virus. As I explain in detail in the last episode, there is no gold standard, as they call it, gold standard test for the virus. And so the only method of testing is the test that's being used, the PCR test. There's nothing to compare the test to. So its accuracy cannot be identified. The pandemic will go on forever while this test is being used. It's because it will always produce fake cases. This is why I focused on the test so much. Because to unravel that is to unravel a massive key part of the scam. And the final subject this week is the UK government's response to COVID-19. This is in Daily Mail's a blog by Peter Hitchens, who has written some great articles over the course of the last several months. And this is called, Britons are being sentenced to a slow, agonising death by Number 10's panic squad. This is a column he does for the Mail on Sunday. One of the filthiest tactics of the panic merchants is to claim that anyone who opposes their strangling of the country is callous and cares only about money, not life. The irony is the panic merchants care only about money, not life especially Bill Gates's money in terms of Hancock, Whitty and Valley. Dissenters have been pelted with slime of this kind by Johnson, the man who ruined Britain, and by his dense psychic Hancock, perhaps the first health secretary in history who does not know that malaria is spread by mosquitoes. They tell us we wish to let the virus rip. Well, Johnson and Hancock, if you care so much about lives, get in touch with Lisa King, as I did. I ask her to tell you about how her husband, Peter, a retired taxi driver aged 62, died. It is a horrible, upsetting story involving a grown man screaming in agony. And in my view, it is an absolutely direct consequence of Hancock's conversion of the NHS into a national COVID-19 service, which treats everything else as a nuisance. Peter King was grudgingly granted, as so many now are, a remote session with a GP who, unable to meet him and apparently ignorant of his records, diagnosed his severe chest discomfort as reflux. Surprised it didn't diagnose it as COVID-19. I'm not especially interested in blaming this doctor. Under the conditions created by Hancock, he was presumably doing his best, but it was not good enough. Actually, the trouble was far more serious. A stone trapped in his gallbladder, 
and the resulting delay meant he was overcome with indescribable pain a few days later. Peter was given emergency surgery to reduce the agony but needed a more radical operation. He was put on the urgent list for it, but this was still too late. He fell terribly ill again, despite the heroic efforts of paramedics he died. The many years of happy life which Peter and Lisa King might otherwise have had were wiped out forever. This is not just some isolated case. Something like 25 million appointments with GPs have been lost as a result of the Johnson government's panic, not as a result of COVID-19, as the hopelessly pro-government and Bill Gates funded. This article doesn't say that, but it is. BBC always says... The government had a choice over how to respond and took the wrong path. Millions have not had referrals for diagnoses, including cancer and heart disease. Some of them will have been scythed down as Peter King was. Others will have been needlessly damaged in smaller, slower ways. But this is what Johnson and Hancock have let rip. Needless pain, needless death. Let them never again dare to pretend that their original bungle and the later months in which they have tried to save themselves from deserved disgrace were the only way to save lives. I suspect their panic may well, in the end, kill more than COVID-19 ever did or could have done. We are in the hands of fools who will not admit they have made a terrible mistake. Those still taken in by the cuddly, caring Boris image of Prime Minister Johnson may wish to study his impatient, callous response to a distressing question in the Commons last week about the absurd cladding rules which are preventing thousands from moving home, often at horrible personal cost. Dulwich MP Helen Hayes asked about a constituent, Luke Thomas, recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. He urgently needs to move closer to his family for support but cannot sell his flat as it does not have the accursed EWS1 form mentioned here last week, which is pointlessly blocking so many from moving. Mr Thomas has no time to wait for relief, Miss Hayes asked. When will the Prime Minister end this scandal? He brushed this off, referring her to an equally useless answer he gave earlier. If he cares, it does not show. If only this grim nightmare was still just fiction. And there's another section here which is worth reading. So far, the new Sky TV version of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is not as bad as I feared it would be. It is hard to bring this brilliant, bitter book to the screen. So much of Huxley's fantasy came true long before he predicted it would, so a lot of it is just not shocking anymore. When Huxley wrote it in the 1930s, Lifelong marriage was normal and looked as if it would stay that way. Children were the expected result of sex and drug taking was despised. His clever idea that a future society would actively encourage promiscuity, abolish parenthood and privacy and make drug taking compulsory was too good a prophecy. It's almost all happened. Why is that? There is an agenda for the world and if nothing intervenes to stop that agenda then it's going to happen. So if you can access that agenda by being an insider or by research, then you can predict the future. The article goes on. As Huxley feared, we have come to love our own enslavement by pleasure. I used to think Huxley had been completely right in George Orwell's alternative nightmare of a surveillance state based on terror, secret police spies and torture had been wrong. But recently I've come to the grim conclusion that we will end up with a mixture of both. On one thing they both agreed. Whichever sort we end up with, we'll use the metric system. The agenda that Huxley and Orwell were writing about is exactly the agenda I've been talking about since pay-per-view began and in fact in various ways for the past nearly 15 years. The nightmare world which we have seen unfold over the past several months and in fact it's been building for decades and more and it's unfolding faster now because it's getting closer and closer to its end game and in terms of the first part of the article about the UK government's response to COVID-19. The simple fact is this. 
for the reasons stated in the article and for other reasons. Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance must go before a Nuremberg-type trial for crimes against humanity in a truly open, truly independent public trial broadcast on live television when this madness is over. They know the consequences of their actions. They know lockdown will kill far more people than the virus ever would. And do they know the test is not testing for the virus, which is generating the fake cases, which is justifying the lockdowns and everything that comes from that? Why don't they know? They should know if they don't. And they're all funded, apart from Boris Johnson, by Bill Gates. And Johnson is surrounded by those who are funded by Bill Gates. Bill Gates, who is funding organisations and study groups calling for lockdown, the biggest funder and therefore owner of the World Health Organisation, of which the CDC in America is an offshoot, and funds individuals like Fauci and Brooks in America. Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, whose pathetic computer models led to lockdown in Britain and America. This is a guy who has a terrible history of computer modelling and consequences that come from that. And he's funding the BBC through an organisation called BBC Media Action. Johnson and Hancock talk about arising cases which come from a test, not testing for the virus. As I explain in detail in the previous episode. As long as this test is used, there will never be an end to the pandemic because... In these summer months up to now, in mid-autumn especially, the cases are the pandemic. Stop the spread of the virus. Do this and that to limit the spread of the virus when the spread of the virus is based on cases which come from a test not testing for the virus. Where there have been deaths, not from COVID-19, it's just deaths from other causes that have been labelled COVID-19. Why is it that 86% of people who test positive have no symptoms? don't need to go to hospital and don't die because there's nothing wrong with them ah but they're asymptomatic carriers 86 percent of people who test positive for a potentially deadly virus are asymptomatic just ponder on that for a moment of people only know they've got a deadly virus because of a pathetic test. I'm not a virologist, but even I can see a flaw there. During these summer months, the infection to fatality ratio has been 0.04% if you're under 70. And even if you are 70 or over, it's still only 0.26%. But... That was a month ago, maybe two months, that figure came out. And every time someone tests positive, but tests not testing for the virus, but even, let's just say that it is testing for the virus only. Every time someone tests positive with no symptoms, etc., which, as I've just said, is nearly everybody, that infection to fatality ratio gets smaller and smaller, tinier and tinier and tinier. It's a good thing that there are so many asymptomatic cases because it means the virus is not as deadly as first thought. I say it doesn't exist, but, and I detailed my reasons for that over the past several months in these pay-per-view episodes, but even if it does, it's still not as deadly as first thought. And bear in mind, it's the infection to fatality ratio. So 
the infection is based on cases which come from a test not testing for the virus. And because of that, parts of Britain are being locked down again. Well, they want to get us a full nationwide lockdown like we had in the winter just gone. Businesses are being closed down. People are losing livelihoods. People are committing suicide. People are not being able to see loved ones die in hospital. Mental health problems are going through the roof. The destruction of the economy and ever more draconian restrictions are being imposed because of cases from a test not testing for the virus. This is what the inventor of the test, Kerry Mullis, in the 1980s won the Nobel Prize for it, said. He said the test, PCR test cannot accurately test for infectious diseases. Test cannot detect free infectious viruses. He said the test shouldn't be used to diagnose infectious disease. They're using it to diagnose infectious disease. He said it shouldn't be used to diagnose infectious disease because it can't. That's not what he invented it to do. He said the idea that this test can isolate and specifically test for a virus is ludicrous. I mean, this test is almost, almost at the point of ludicrousness of inventing a pregnancy test and using it to detect the temperature inside an oven. It's almost on that level of ludicrous, this test. I mean, pathetic. But look at the what's being justified as a result. And the modern today versions of these tests being manufactured here's what two manufacturers say about these tests on their website this is roche not intended for use as an aid in the diagnosis of coronavirus infection for research use only not for use in diagnostic procedures this is what creative diagnostics say on their website for research purposes only, not for use in diagnostic procedures. This is what it says on the website of Ares Systems. These products are for research use only, not for use in diagnostic procedures. So what these companies are saying today about the versions of these tests, which are being used specifically for SARS-CoV-2, the virus which they say causes COVID-19, is exactly what Kerry Mullis said about it in the 80s when he invented it. And as I say, I talk in detail about this test in the previous episode and why it's not testing for the virus, why it can't test for the virus or a virus. Johnson and Hancock say we're being guided by the science. No, you're being guided by those producing science which suits Bill Gates who funds you and by science which those who are also funded by Bill Gates, like Professor Ferguson of Imperial College London, are advising you on. You're ignoring any other science and information and continuing to destroy lives and livelihoods in the process as a result. And that's why these characters, including people like Witty and Valance, must, must, must stand trial for crimes against humanity. And some of us are not going to let them just walk away from this. And in an open, truly, truly independent public inquiry, where all the truth can come out, they will end up in jail. Actually, in Burks in America and all their like around the world, and others, those in the media must stand trial. Those in the medical profession must stand trial. 
World Health Organization, all these people, Bill Gates especially, and those who go to jail, not necessarily all of them, but those who go to jail, they will remember their actions during the course of this pandemic hoax from an old-fashioned prison cell with no Xbox and no luxuries like some people get in prison for the rest of their lives. They will realize that if you try to scam the people on this scale, that there will be consequences. And that is a message which will be and must be made loud and clear for anyone else thinking of trying to scam the people on anything like the scale of this pandemic hopes ever again. So that's it for this week. What a nice, light-hearted way to end it. Well, unfortunately, the world at the moment is far from light-hearted, very much the opposite. But only for as long as people allow that to be the case. But there is a momentum gathering. We're talking tens of thousands of people. Look at the 30, 40 plus thousands of people that have been at the Trafalgar Square demonstrations and other smaller scale demonstrations around the country and I'm seeing it myself people starting to look at the world in a different way and questioning this pandemic hopes so I think the momentum is going to continue building and building and building and we will reach a point where there is just an enormous number of people both informed and acting upon that information so there are reasons to be optimistic even though it may not seem like it, there are reasons to be optimistic. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.